We will continue in our series on the exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and we're in chapter 1, in verses 18 to 20 this morning. Let me read, for context, I'm going to read starting in verse 13 to 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and manifesting yourself to us, showing us the Father, God, in the flesh, God of God, light of light, fully God and fully man. Lord, help us to see you this morning in your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in part four of this mini-series, which um, I have entitled Glorious Christ. And uh, this section of the Apostle Paul's letter um, in verses 13 to about verse 22 or 23, depending on how your Bible divides it up, uh, it may have a heading that says something along the lines of the preeminence of Christ, the glory of Christ, um, something about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And, and this is, in a sense, as many scholars have has said, um, some sort of hymn, early Christian hymn, that, that Paul may be um, including in his letter, or, or maybe he, he wrote it from the beginning, but whatever it is, it exalts Jesus Christ, and, and we're right here in this section in verses 18 through 20, which exalts Christ as the head of the church. However, throughout church history, there have been several differing compositions of the local church bodies in terms of size, demographics, church government, and the leadership of the church, and and in many of these different compositions, they've had different views um, concerning the church, how it should be structured, how the leadership should uh, function, um, what type of leadership should they have. And it was all based on their view of Christ and their view of the scriptures. And, and, and some of these variances have been due to less than ideal circumstances in which uh, churches have found themselves in, such as persecution. In other instances, um, their composition of the church was due to a genuine ignorance of the scriptures in regard to what they taught concerning the form and functions of the church and its leadership roles. In early church history, the role of bishop came about as the leader over the church in a particular city. Usually those large cities such as Rome or Alexandria um, or Constantinople. 
And as the church would later enjoy the peace of Rome after um, Constantine, um, the church would grow and it would acquire land and buildings and form monasteries and schools and develop a greater hierarchy of leadership, which would eventually become the Roman Catholic Church, which was the form of the church um, from the early 600s until um, the early 1500s and, and even today. And the Roman Catholic Church during that time was, it, that was what you saw as a church. It was a primary form of the church. It was organized into a hierarchy of priests, bishops, cardinals, with the Pope as the head of the whole organization. This is what people viewed as the church. And, and, and even as after the Reformation in the early 1500s, as, as Christians moved away from that form of church and the, the, the errors and the heresies in the Roman Catholic Church, they would try to develop their own forms of church government and figure things out and try to figure out what Scripture said and how they could be most faithful to Scripture in terms of the hierarchy of the church, and, and, and yet there's still many variances and many philosophies and differences concerning who is the head. And even today, if you ask most people that would call themselves Christian, or, or in particular, most people outside of the Christian church, who is the head of the church, um, many people who are not true believers would say the Pope. Or they would say some other head. And it's interesting that throughout a large part of church history, that was considered the hierarchy, the leadership. And it's just interesting that you could even Google head of the church. And more often than not, the results would be the Pope. And it's interesting because even the Catholic church themselves in their own catechism, in their own official teaching. And they, they say this concerning the Pope. They say the Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is a perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Catholic Encyclopedia says this concerning the title Vicar of Christ. It says this, Vicar of Christ, a title of the Pope implying his supreme and universal primacy, both of honor and of jurisdiction over the church of Christ. It is founded on the words of the divine shepherd of St. Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, in John 21, by which he constituted the prince of the apostles guardian of his entire flock in his own place, and thus making him his vicar, and fulfilling the promise made in Matthew 16, 18-19. In the course of ages, other vicarial designations have been used for the Pope as vicar of St. Peter and even vicar of the apostles apostolic see, but the title Vicar of Christ is more expressive of his supreme headship of the church on earth, which he bears in virtue of the commission of Christ and with vicarial power derived from him. That term, Vicar of Christ, as they themselves would say, quite literally means in the place of Christ. But one of the... Um, foremost uh, Greek lexicons that um, is relied upon by many scholars has a definition for a preposition in Greek. This preposition is called anti, from which we get the English word anti, meaning, and it writes, meaning opposite than of various types of correspondence, ranging from replacement to equivalence. 
indicating that one person or thing is or is to be replaced by another, instead of, in place of. Two, indicating that one thing is equivalent to another, for, as, in place of. That term, anti, which many of you probably already understood, is found in the terms antichrist. And it quite literally means, when we see antichrist in our Bibles, it means in the place of Christ, instead of Christ. In John's letter, 1 John 2.18, he says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This term, he said many antichrists. And this is interesting because it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, but many forms of the church, and even in our own Protestant heritage. There are many forms of church leadership and many pastors who would, for the most part, be considered faithful, have been tempted to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ over his church. And what the official Roman Catholic teaching says about the Pope and even its subordinate priests is not only heresy, it's blasphemy. That they would claim that a human being could stand in the place of Christ over the head of his church whom he has bought and paid for with his own blood. There is only one head, one ruler, one supreme leader of the church, and that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of the church. And we can clearly see the heresy in the Roman Catholic Church, but it also takes subtle forms in our Protestant heritage. It also takes the form of usurpation in the subtle words and titles of Protestant pastors, people who might call themselves bishops or heads. And yet in this passage, in Colossians 1, Paul clearly proclaims that Jesus Christ is the head of this church. He is the head of the entire church, the universal church, every local church. And here we see four aspects of Christ's headship over his church. First, number one, that he is the sole head of the church. Verse 18. Paul says it. He is the head of the body, the church. And and just by way of implication, what does it mean that Jesus is the head of the body, the church? Well, number one, that there is no other head. There, there cannot be another head of another body. Uh, and some of you may have seen pictures like this, um, either in documentaries or um, magazines that oftentimes, because our world is fallen and corrupt and, and we're under the, the, the creation itself is under the weight of the curse of sin, that we can see deformities such as a two-headed snake or a two-headed mouse or some other animal. And, and, and I remember one time seeing a documentary of even a child with two heads. And everything within you says this is wrong. This is not right. A body only has one head. There is no other head. There's no additional heads, which is partly why Paul says this, because Jesus is not one of many, as the Gnostics would say, the, the, the error of Gnosticism that he is confronting, that in their day and age, the, this heresy of Gnosticism, that Jesus was one of many spiritual beings which God created. But Paul says, no, there's one head. There's no additional heads. There's no lesser heads. I remember when I was uh, preparing 
to go to seminary, and I had the the I, I already made the decision. I was already accepted into a seminary, and I, I was I was uh, training uh, to be an army officer in a course, and 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 one of the my other fellow lieutenants, he, he came up to me and and, and he said, um, I heard you're going to seminary. He's like, I, I, I'm not very religious, I'm spiritual, but I will go to your church. I remember friends and, 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 and uh, other associates and unbelievers who would say, when I was studying for ministry, will you have your own church someday? And though I was, you know, polite and friendly, um, right away, I, I can't have my own church. No one has their own church except Jesus Christ. It's his church. This belongs to him. And, and yet, because we were created, all of us, and, and particularly men, were created to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And there is a sense that we, within us, our purpose, our function as human beings is to be kingdom builders, to build the kingdom. Our temptation in our fallenness is not to build God's kingdom, but to build our own kingdom. You, you've all heard the term, the man and his castle. And referring to his home. And that's, there's, there's biblical truth in that. That a man does build his home, and, and in a sense it is his castle, and he has authority over that home. But here in the church of Jesus Christ, there's only one that has supreme authority. There's only one head. There's no other head. Second, Jesus is the sole head of the church because there's no other body. There's one head and one body. And the head is united to the body. Romans chapter 6, Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 this, this concept of union with Christ, of unity in Christ. And he says in Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 to 5, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's the sole head of the church because there is no other head and there is no other body. And the, the, the sole head is united to the sole body. Not only that, but the, the body is one in and of itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Paul is speaking to the Corinthians concerning um, sin and, and the ramifications of sin in the body of Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 15 to 17, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And he's addressing a particular sin of, of the, the false worship of the Corinthians and the Greco-Roman world and this aspect of their false worship of the cult prostitutes and, and, and their false temples and, and worshiping their false gods. There was sexual immorality and they, they would join themselves to the cult prostitutes in the temple and thereby commune with God or their false god. But Paul is saying that, no, we're one with Christ. And when we sin whether it's a grievous sin like sexual immorality or, or whether it's harboring bitterness towards another believer, we're sinning against the body and we're sinning against Christ. 
because we're joining our members or using our members to carry out sin. So the body is one with the head and the body is one with one another. And, and, and this is why when, when, when Jesus calls Saul on the road to Damascus, and when, when he arrests Saul and stops him from persecuting the, the church, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was going after Christians. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Because he was one with all the other believers whom Saul was going after. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus is the sole head of the church because there is no other head, because there is no other body. They're one, and the members are united to one another. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul um, explains this a little bit further about the concept of the body being one with many members, uh, unity in diversity, and how every member has its own function. Every member has been given a gift for the greater whole. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, through many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then down in verse 20, he says this. He says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The members are united to one another. And it's the head that gives life to the body. This is why Paul says later in um, Colossians 2, verses 18 to 19, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished, and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. What, what Paul is saying here is that both the life and the unity of the church is rooted and grounded in the head of the church, in Jesus Christ. They are one. There are no other heads. There's no other bodies. There are no other rulers. He exercises complete authority over his body. And, and yes, there are subordinate authorities in the church, but any authority in the church is a derived authority, delegated for a particular time and purpose. And that authority is governed by his word. Spiritual authority begins and ends with the word of God. And if it is not in line with the word of God, then, then you're starting to um, venture into the areas of legalism and even spiritual abuse. All ministry is for a time and season. It, it's, it's delegated. It's temporal. It's limited. I don't know how long I'll be a preacher or a pastor. It, it may be another week. It may be 30 years. It's up to Jesus Christ. It's up to the head of the church. And he appoints pastors and missionaries and preachers and, and even Sunday school teachers. All ministry is to be held with an open hand. That he appoints his ministers for a time and a place for a purpose. And he governs that. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is, explains this a little bit more clearly as he explains the function of the church and how the church was developed. And you can turn there in Ephesians chapter 4. It says this in, in verses 11 to 16. Paul writes this. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each, per, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, just as the Apostle Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 12, that there's no part of the body that is um, expendable. It's... It's all important. There's different functions. There's different purposes. But it's all one. And he even gave these leaders, these teachers at the beginning of um, Ephesians 4.11 to equip the body. It's for the purpose of the body. So that we would all grow up into the head and be built up into him in love. So... Yes, there, there may be some authorities, but they're limited. They're not complete authority. They're, they're not rulers. There, there's one head. And he exercises authority over his body. He governs his body. It's interesting because even throughout the history of Israel, even throughout the history of, of Israel, they, they understood a, a, a bit of spiritual authority and, and there, there are different types of leadership with elders and priests and scribes. And, and, and there was this, this term called the seat of Moses. And you, you can even, if, if you're privileged to go to an ancient synagogue, um, there's a literal seat where the synagogue leader would sit. And that was the seat of Moses where he would... Um, lead that synagogue in the teaching of the law of Moses in the Torah and, and, and Jesus says he even says even in his day with all of the um, the wrong uh, practices of the Pharisees and Sadducees he says this in Matthew 23 he says Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And, and, and in a sense, Jesus is affirming their position as leaders in accord with the word of Moses and the law of Moses. That's why he's saying to them to do and observe what they tell you because they're, they're teaching the law of Moses so long as they're teaching the word of God, do and observe it, but not the works that they do, because they're hypocrites. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's not saying follow everything I do. He's saying follow the pattern of the sound words where spiritual authority begins and ends with the word of God. Whenever somebody, some leader or an example is acting in accord or teaching in accord with the word of God, we are to follow it and observe it. And where they depart from the word of God, we are not to listen. As one preacher has said and often says, eat the meat and spit out the bones. It means whatever they teach you, if it is good and right and true, accept that, follow that. If it's in accord with the word of God, that's where spiritual authority is, uh, 
has its limits and is exercised. And, and that authority comes from Christ because the Word of God is the Word of Christ. He exercises authority over His body through His Word and through His appointed leaders whose appointment is for a time and season and limited and governed by His Word. He guides His body through His Word, through His shepherds, and through His perfect providence. We know that He is the head of the church when He uh, lifts up and takes away pastors and leaders, when He opens churches and closes churches, Probably one of the most convicting uh, passages in the Bible concerning the church of Jesus Christ is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when he, he talks about um, the churches at that time and, and the good things that they're doing and the bad things that they're doing. And he rebukes many of them. And, and it's a lesson for us today. And in his... In his uh, rebuke or, or his, uh, his message to the church at Ephesus in that time during the writing um, of the Apostle John, he writes this in Revelation 2, verses 2 to 5. He says, concerning the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. Sounds good. Sounds like they're faithful. Sounds like they're doing everything they're supposed to do. But in verse 4 he says this. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They're doing all the wonderful, great, and good things that they were supposed to be doing. But they lost their first love. And Christ rebukes them for this and says, in a sense, if, if you don't change, if you don't repent, I will remove, I will shut down the church. And he did. Because there is no church of Ephesus anymore. And, and you would be hard-pressed to find any church that has been around more than 100 years. Jesus rules over his church. He opens them up. He closes them. He plants new ones. He appoints ministers. He takes ministers away. He exercises complete and utter authority over the church because he is the sole head of the church, his body. Second, he is the supreme head of the church. Verse 18 and following. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He, he is the beginning, meaning he's the, the first and the foremost, the firstborn. From, to rise from the dead, the, the first of the new creation, the, the first uh, glorified man. He established the church. That's what Paul is pointing to, that he established the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. church. In, his, in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, as he was resurrected, he, and, and he, he established the church through his sacrifice. He is the cornerstone of the church, as he said. And, and, and later on, his apostles would preach this. The apostle Peter, he preached this at Pentecost in his sermon in Acts chapter 4. He preaches that, that Jesus is the head of the church by saying that he is the cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, in verses 11 to 12, Peter writes this. He says, this Jesus... Or, Peter didn't write it, Luke did, but Peter preached it. He said, this Jesus to the Jews is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And later in his epistle, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He is the cornerstone of the church. He laid the foundation for his church, the prophets and the apostles. As Paul would write to the Ephesians, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He is the supreme head of the church because he established the church. He laid the foundation for the church. He is the cornerstone. Whenever And, and a lot of our buildings aren't masonry today. A lot of times we construct our buildings with steel and wood and other materials. But there are still buildings with stone, with cornerstones. And those cornerstones are big. Those are the first ones that are laid. And that is what the whole building, the foundation, comes out of the cornerstone. And those cornerstones, you, you can see them in old buildings. And usually there's a stamp. Usually there's a memorial. Usually there's something special about that cornerstone. Because the whole building, in a sense, rests upon, was established upon that cornerstone and for the church that is Jesus Christ. He not only established the church, he laid the foundation for his church and the prophets and the apostles and their preaching and teaching of the word of God and writing the word of God. That is the foundation for his church. And then upon that foundation, he builds his church. He builds his church. As he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, uh, as he, he's going around Israel and, and people are saying all these things about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he just another teacher? And Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And get this, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that rock was not Peter. That was the testimony of Peter. That was the gospel which Peter spoke, that Jesus is the Christ, and all that is within the title of Christ and Messiah, he is him. And that's the testimony upon which he builds his church. So he has not only established his church as the beginning, as the firstborn from the dead, but he is the forerunner of his church. And what, what, what do I mean by forerunner? This, this term is, there's only one place in the Bible. This is Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the forerunner. He says this in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is what Paul is alluding to as he says the firstborn from the dead. He, he was the first man, the God-man, to be resurrected, to, to arise from the dead, to defeat sin, death, and hell, and to go as a forerunner from the dead to ascend up into heaven where we will go as well. But he went first to go up into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, to intercede on our behalf, to sit down at the right hand of the Father because his work had been done. He established his church. He is the forerunner of his church because he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first of a restored humanity. John Calvin comments on this 
this concept of firstborn from the dead when he says this in his commentary. He says this, He is the beginning because he is the firstborn from the dead. For in the resurrection there is a restoration of all things, and in this manner the commencement of the second and new creation. For the former had fallen to pieces in the ruin of the first man. As then, Christ in rising again had made a commencement of the kingdom of God. He is on good grounds called the beginning. For then do we truly begin to have a being in the sight of God when we are renewed so as to be new creatures. He is called the first begotten from the dead, not merely because he was the first that rose again, but because he also has restored life to others. And he is elsewhere called the first fruits of those that rise again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is not just the firstborn from the dead. Or the first of a restored humanity though. He will be the first to return to a restored earth and heavens. As he returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. And then will later make all things new. He is the supreme head of the church because he established the church. Because he is the forerunner of his church. And third, because... He is the example for his church. He is the example for our lives in our own sanctification as we uh, follow him. As Paul would write later in Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, Jesus Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He is our example and that's why we proclaim him to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom so that they may follow him and become like him. He is the example for his church. He is the example in, for our lives. He is the example for our relationships. How he related to his father. That he always sought to do the father's will. That's all he ever done. Is to do the father's will. And he, he taught us to pray our Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's the example for our relationships with God, for our relationships with his earthly family, and how he took care of his mother. Even, even as he was on the cross, he made sure his mother was taken care of. As he passed off the care of his mother to his disciple John. And for his spiritual family. Even... Before, um, as the word of God says, that some of his earthly brothers would come to faith, even before that, um, it, there's crowds who said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers but the people who believe in me, who follow me, those who are mine, who obey my word. He's an example that... Um, there are people in our earthly families that, yes, we are supposed to take care of them, but they are not related to us in the greater sense of the spirituality of being born again, of being in Christ. And so there will be divisions. And yet we're sp still supposed to take care of them and care for them, but primarily in terms of proclaiming the gospel to them. He is our example for our relationships with authorities and, and how he uh, confronted religious leaders who are wrong, how he confronted uh, and spoke about the, the earthly rulers, that he did give them their, their respect, the respect that was due to them, but yet at the same time did not back away from pro proclaiming the word of God to them or who he was. He's our example for our witness of, of proclaiming the gospel, of God's work in the world and, and, and how he uh, approached unbelievers, how he proclaimed the gospel in, in many different ways. He met the sinners where they were at. He was a friend to sinners. Yet by no means did he shy away from uh, proclaiming the sinfulness of their sin. He is our example. He is the focus of his church. 
as the second Adam, as the preeminent man, as the God-man who we will be conformed into his image. He is the focus of his church as the Messiah, the preeminent king, the redeemer king, as the name above all names. He is our focus. He is our worship. As in Philippians 2, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the focus of his church because he's the supreme head of the church, because he is the one that we're to worship. Jonathan Edwards said this concerning Colossians 1, 18 to 19. He said this, he said, By this it appears that it was the design of God so to exalt and glorify his Son that all his intelligent creatures should in everything be after him, inferior to him, subject to him, and dependent upon him, and should have all their fullness, all their supplies from him and in him. Because he is the supreme head of the church, he is the worship of his church. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding Christ as in, uh, as in a mirror, as, we, we, as in the, the reflection, as we behold his glory, we are being transformed into his glory from one degree of glory to another. As we worship him, we are being conformed into his image. Because he is the supreme head of the church. So he is the sole head of the church. He is the supreme head of the church. And third, he is the sufficient head of the church. Verse 19. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is sufficient first in his being as the God-man. As Paul writes, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's not saying that there was a time when the fullness of God was not there. He's talking about the, his, his earthly being. That, that God took on human flesh and became a man. He was always God. He never ceased to be God. He never became God. He took on human flesh as a God-man. He was perfect in his deity and his humanity. And as the God-man, as the perfect man, he is, he is perfect in all his attributes and his character. He, he shows the Father to us. He explains the Father to us, as it says in John 1 and John 14. All his attributes of holiness and grace and mercy and justice and wrath, everything is displayed in Jesus Christ. He is also perfect in his works and his words. Jesus himself said, you will be judged for every careless word. And yet his words were perfect. Every single one of them. As settings, as, as Proverbs said, fillets of gold and settings of silver, or apples of gold and settings of silver. His words were perfect. Perfect timing. His works were perfect. He is sufficient in his being, in his all his perfections as a God man, and he is sufficient in his position. In his position as the creator, as the king of the Jews, as as our king of the coming kingdom, as the Lord of redemption, he is completely sufficient, and he is sufficient as the head of the church. He does not need the church. He created the church and he governs the church and he guides the church because he is the head of the church. He is the sole head of the church. He is the supreme head of the church. He is the sufficient head of the church. And fourth and last, he is the saving head of the church. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He saves his people from their sins. That's why he is the saving head of the church. And it's, 
It's amazing. This just shows the grace and the mercy of God, that God himself, this high ruler, uh, the, the head of this organization, would stoop so low to take on human flesh, to die for his people, to bear the sins for his people, that punishment which he was innocent of, which we deserved. He bore. He saves his people from their sins, from the penalty of sin. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He saves his people from his sins. He saves his people from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and, and even the position of sin as sinners. Paul writes to the Corinthians, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That legally, in the courtroom of God, he justifies us as sinners. He erases that sin debt. He does away with it. Because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as Paul writes in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation because he took that condemnation for us. He bore it in his body. He saves us from that position of sinner, of guilty, of criminal. And lastly, he, he saves us from the presence of sin. As Paul writes to the Philippians in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to to completion at the day of judgment. He will complete the good work that he began in us. And, and that is a great comfort because oftentimes we're burdened by our sin. And if you're not burdened by your sin, then you probably haven't been saved from your sin. But we get discouraged as we walk in this sin-cursed world with this sinful flesh, and we continue to go back to our sin. But the encouragement is that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And so we measure our sanctification, our growth in holiness, not in days and weeks, but in months and years. And, and, and according to the word of God, that He, if he has begun a good work, he will complete it, and we will be holy. As he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's not just a command, that's a promise. It's both and, it's not either or. That's a command and a promise. You will be holy because he is holy. And you better be holy because he is holy. It's both and. So it, it, it's, it's a comforting encouragement. He saves us from our sins, his people from their sins because he's a saving head. But it's not just, it doesn't just stop with his people. He saves his creation from the corruption. He reverses the curse. He will harmonize the universe. And this is what Paul means by, by reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And, and I alluded to this last week, that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. He reconciles to himself all things. That doesn't mean that he saves all people because otherwise there, he would not talk about hell. He does not save all people. There is no universal atonement. He dies for his people and his people alone. But he will reconcile all things to himself. He will save his people from their sins and he will save his creation from the corruption that was the result of of sin. He harmonizes the universe. He puts everything, he will put everything in its proper place. One commentator writes this, our Lord in fact spoke of the impenitent as going away into eternal punishment in Matthew 25:46. We should therefore understand this statement to be a reference to the cosmic significance of Christ's work. The thought being similar to, but not identical with, that of Romans eight nineteen to 22 where he speaks of the creation groaning. There, the general sense is that the disorder that has characterized creation will be done away and divine harmony restored. Here, perhaps, the main idea is that all things eventually are to be 
decisively subdued to God's will and made to serve his purposes. He will reconcile all things first by saving his people, by condemning his enemies in hell, and then by restoring his creation first in the millennial kingdom when he returns, and second, when he makes all things new with the new heavens and new earth. He saves his people from his sins. He saves his creation from the corruption. And he saves through his life, death, and resurrection. First and foremost, through his righteous life. We're, we're not just saved because of his sacrifice. His sacrifice paid the sin debt. It paid the penalty. But we're also saved by his righteous life because we, we fell short of God's standard. We not only transgressed God's commands, but we have not followed positively the commands that he has given us. We sin not just in the commission of sin and committing sin, but in the omission of his righteous uh, commands for us. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Jesus saves us through his death, in paying that sin debt for our sins of commission and even our sins of omission, but his righteous life imputed to us gives us, helps us to meet the standard of God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We're saved through his life, death, and resurrection, through his righteous life, through his shameful death on the cross, which he, in which he bore our sins, despising that shame that was supposed to be um, accompanied with that form of capital punishment. And then he saves, through, he saves us through his glorious resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, this, he says in verses 8 to 10, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church because he's the sole head he is the supreme head he is the sufficient head and he is the saving head because he saves his people from their sins he saves his people from an eternity in hell and, and not only from the the bad he, he not only saves us from that punishment but he saves us to his kingdom to be one in his body to be one with him and we will be one with him. And that's why we come to this table. That's why we come to celebrate that sacrifice. And not just his sacrifice that happened at a point in time, but his return. And as we come, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to drink this cup and to eat this bread, we have to remind ourselves that we are commanded to examine ourselves that we would not eat it in an unworthy manner. And what does Paul mean by that? Well, first and foremost, that if you are living in unrepentant, clear, unrepentant sin, then you are not to drink of this cup or eat of this bread. If you have yet to repent from your sins and trust in Christ, you are not to eat of this bread and drink this cup because in doing so, you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And yet, this cup and this bread, there's, there's nothing um, special in them in, in that they save or they do something special to you, but it is a memorial of what Christ has done for us and what he will do with us in his kingdom. It's a memorial of his sacrifice. And so, as we come to this table, I would ask us all to bow our heads for a moment and pray and and uh, we'll have the the men will direct you to distribute 
these elements. But let us pray that we will prepare ourselves before we come to this table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this reminder of who Jesus Christ is as our great head, the head of the body, the head of the church, that through him you have made us one into one body. You have reconciled us to yourself. And and in that sacrifice, there is indication that you will not only reconcile your people, but you will reconcile all things that, that he has done it through his body, through his blood. So, Lord, help us to examine ourselves, not only in light of this uh, celebration, which he has commanded us to partake in, but in light of these words which we've just heard, that they would impact our heart and minds and bear fruit. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.